So uh, I want to share a, a memory with you, and it has, uh, I think, an excellent connection to what we read in the Torah portion for this morning. So uh, as you probably know, I'm originally from New York, and uh, growing up in New York, I was born in 1966, around uh, 10 years old, the Islanders uh, were becoming a powerhouse hockey team. In uh, 1980, they start winning the first of four Stanley Cups, and uh, I know for the Toronto Maple Leaf fans, that's a hard memory to reconcile that they have pictures of the Islanders in full color winning the Stanley Cup. Not so much so for the Toronto Maple Leafs, but there's always next season, I'm told. In any event, um, I uh, absolutely adored the team. And each of the players had posters on my wall, I collected trading cards, and uh, a very, very good friend of mine, his father was one of the leading um, OBGs, obstetric doctors, uh, on Long Island. He had a very, very busy practice. And many of the players on the hockey team were using his services to deliver their children. So one summer, I go over to the house, and we, it's, it's Long Island for a reason, because it's surrounded by water. And so we were going to go on a boat and go fishing. And uh, my friend's father turns to me and says, we have a surprise coming to the boat today. Of course, I asked what. He says, I'm not telling you. About 10 minutes later, a car pulls up, and who comes out? It's the, um, the center of the New York Islanders, Brian Trottier. Brian Trottier would later go on to win an additional three Stanley Cups. He won seven in his life. And I remember, and I suspect all of you, to some degree or another, probably have an experience like this. What happens when you meet someone who you idolize? Someone for whom what you know about them is nothing about them as a person, but it's all mythology and story. The boat ride lasted for about an hour and a half between fishing and whatnot. I don't think I said three words to the guy. I stood on the other side of the boat and I just stared at him the whole time. Anyways, when he got off the boat, he pinched me on the cheeks and he says, it was nice spending time with you. And uh, afterwards, I was so disappointed in myself because I should have spoken to him. Later on, I met him years later, and I recalled it with him. And... But the story of what happens when you encounter a story and the power of a story is a lesson worth listening to. This morning, we hear the story about stories. And I'm going to briefly recap, uh, I'm gonna recap it for you so that you understand the context and what I'm speaking to. This morning we read about the Miraglim, about the spies that Moses sends out that are on the cusp of the border of the Promised Land. And in order to convey a sense of security and confidence to the people, there's a rabbinic debate. Did Moses, um, did he agree to sending them because the people wanted, but he didn't really want to send them? Or was Moses the initiator of sending them? Of course, the question emerges that if this is the land that God had promised to the Israelites, why would they even need a set of spies? What should have been their assumption? That if this is what God wanted to give them, there would be no need to spy it out. But that's a discussion for a different day. The spies go. They reconnoitered the land from top to bottom, side to side. And what do they come back with? The story is well known. They come back with the story telling the Israelites that the land is indeed beautiful. 
The land is indeed bountiful. The land is indeed, the expression comes from them, Ered Zavat Chalav Vash, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And then they make a turn and they tell us the following. They say that when we walk through the land, this land that we came to, it is indeed a remarkable and beautiful country. However, we see that the cities that are built in there are b'tsurot gdolot. There are massive fortresses surrounding these cities. And the Amalekites, the feared, powerful Amalekites, also live there. And not only that, but the other Canaanite tribes are also very, very powerful. And the people who live in that land are the Nephilim, they are the giants. And we look like grasshoppers, like insects to them. And at that moment, at that moment, the Israelites who heard this report were shuddered with fear. And they accepted that they, that they would not be possible for them to enter into the land. That it wouldn't be possible for them to enter into the land. And thus they are condemned to wander for the remainder of the 40 years wandering into the desert. Rabbinic tradition says that that generation was condemned to die in the desert for their lack of belief that the land could be had. In short, their inability to go into the land and to possess it was based upon one thing and one thing only. It was a story that they were telling and a story that they were told about what they looked like in the eyes of the people who were there. That the spies come back and say that the Nephilim, these mythological giants from the book of Genesis, that mythology and stories say came down from heaven, that they are occupying and walking the land. And the Israelites said, how could we, these little people, take back the land? There is, however, a second story of spies in the biblical record. It's one that isn't often read, but it should be. The second story of Miraglim, of spies, comes from the book of Joshua. Why is the Sefer Yoshua, the book of Joshua, so important? It is the first biblical book that comes out after the conclusion of the Torah. In other words, the book of Deuteronomy concludes with the death of Moses. And the first biblical book after that is the book of Joshua, Moses' lieutenant, the one that Moses anoints to take over the leadership of the people. In the second chapter of the book of Joshua, we read about another set of spies being sent. But the story couldn't be more different. The spies enter into the land, going to the city of Yericho, of Jericho. They come not into the land entirely, and not even to the city entirely. The story tells us they come to the walls of the city. And outside the walls of the city is a house, an inn, owned by a woman named Rachav. They say that she was a zona. What exactly that means, we're not entirely sure. One obvious interpretation is that she was a prostitute. Another was that she fed people, that she was an innkeeper. Whatever the explanation is, it makes eminent sense. She would know what people were feeling in the city. 
And she looks at them and says like this. She says, you're the Israelites, aren't you? And they go, yes. And she says, we've heard stories about you. We heard what your God did to the Egyptians and to the Red Sea. We heard of your battles against the Canaanite tribes outside on the other side of the border, the Moabites and the Amorites. And our hearts are melting out of fear that you're going to come and possess this land because you can. Those spies of Joshua would turn around. They go no further into the land. They don't go north. They don't go south. They don't go east, west. They head right back to Joshua. And what does Joshua do? He goes in. The power of a story can be seen in two ways. First, that stories have an ability to communicate things in ways and in shapes and forms that are enormously powerful. That more than merely who, what we are, the stories that people tell about us and the stories that we tell about ourselves are profoundly informative to the people that we see ourselves and the people that we can be. But the second element of storytelling is this. More often than not, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves are not the kind of stories that we should be listening to. It's the stories that people tell about us that we have a hard time believing. The stories that people tell us or people tell over about our abilities, about our accomplishments, about their hopes and dreams for us, we have a hard time listening to those things. Because far worse than failing, more greater the pain than failing is not even trying. It took the Israelites to stop listening to the fearful stories they told of themselves and listen to what other people believed that they could do for them to finally step up and accomplish what they could accomplish. Each of you, each of you, know that there are parts of your story that you wish were true, but you're afraid to believe them. Maybe I could be kinder, more giving. Maybe I could study or learn more. Maybe there's a subject, a language, that I am afraid to begin studying, but I could. Our lives are all filled with unconquered territories. And in the end of our story, as we're about to take each of our last breaths, we should be filled once again, not with the regret of things that we didn't try to do, but the comfort that we tried, no matter how often we failed. The German Jewish philosopher, Martin Buber, who left Germany in the early 1930s to make his way to what would eventually become Israel. He was a lecturer at the Hebrew University. He once had an interesting play on the famous saying by the Second Temple Rabbi Hillel, Hillel the Great. 
Hillel once famously said, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? And if I am only for myself, then what will I be? And Buber rearranges it in the words of the Kutzkarebi in this way. He says, if I am not going to be all that I could be, who in this world will ever be me? This morning we are reminded to listen to what we could be in order to become more of what we should be. Shabbat shalom.